If you have your Bible, you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church. This is the pastor bringing the Sunday morning message entitled, Who's Actually Hearing Your Prayers? You'll find our text to study in Matthew and chapter number 6. The first gospel of the New Testament, turn to the sixth chapter of Matthew, and I'll begin reading in verse 5. Time will probably only permit us to make it through verse number 8, so I will pause there. But keep in mind, we really need to read down to verse 15 to get the entire passage in this section of what Jesus is saying. In verse number 5, Jesus, talking to his disciples, his followers, records these words. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Would you be kind and read verse 6 out loud with me together? But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Lord, I pray that you would help us in your word today to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. And may what's said and done here today glorify your name. And more importantly, Lord, may your word be magnified above all your name. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to grow. I've read this passage many, many times. But I have not had it impact me the way that it has these past weeks. As I've meditated over it, prayed over it, seen what others have said about it. But Lord, really considering what you're saying to me through these verses. O Lord, may these not remain in the dust of years ago when they were spoken, but may these words, as they are truly alive, may they be alive here today, and may they transform us into the image of Christ. May we be renewed in our mind by the moving and power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll thank you, Lord, for what you accomplish. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Amen. I want to read from the book of Psalms, just a few verses in Psalm 116, because these verses ring in my ears with what Jesus is teaching his disciples here in the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Psalm 116, verse number one says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. I love the Lord. Because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. If I were to ask you, why do you love the Lord? What would be at the top of your list as to why you love him? Probably you're going to 1 John. I love him because he first loved me. We love him because he first loved us. But the psalmist says, I love the Lord because he hears me. He actually listens. That says volumes to me. So friend, the next time you feel distant, the next time you feel that there's a struggle, there's a load, 
Don't carry that burden alone. You have someone who will listen. Oh, but pastor, you know, what about sin? And what about the things that that keep my prayers from ascending beyond the ceiling? What about those things that bar? Let me remind you of the very beginning where this all started. When Adam was in the garden and he sinned against the Lord, the Lord sought him out as he had done previously, just like every other day before. And the Lord asked Adam, wherefore art thou? The very first prayer in the Bible is from a man who had just plummeted in the darkness and depth of sin. And so, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the psalmist is correct. The Lord will not hear me because I'm regarding it. I'm giving it deference. I'm, I'm putting it before Him. But if I acknowledge it, and if I agree with Him concerning what that is, then the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. We can be heard by God. That's magnificent. That is just amazing. Can you marvel at that with me for just one moment? The fact that there's someone up there. He's really there. And the psalmist says, I love him. I love him because he hears me. He hears my voice. He hears my supplications because he hath inclined his ear unto me. Adam, wherefore art thou? He inclines his ear to us. Therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. If you're saved, how long are you going to live? Trick question. The psalmist then, after he praises the Lord, he moves right into the thick of it and says, the sorrows of death compass me. To compass is on every side. The sorrows of death. He didn't say death compassed me. He said the sorrows of death compassed me. Everywhere I look, there's more pain, there's more sorrow, there's more grief. And I'm in this place where I'm surrounded. He says the pains of hell get hold upon me. They just latch onto you, don't they? And it seems like they'll never let go sometimes. But the psalmist says, I love him because he's heard me. He says, I found trouble and sorrow when that occurred. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Not deliver my body. He said, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yea, our God is merciful. Let me give us the right background for my introduction here. In the East, the, the following phenomenon is often observed. When the desert touches a river valley or an oasis, the sand is in continual state of drift from the wind. And, and it's this drift, which is the real cause of the barrenness of, of these kinds of portions of the desert. Maybe you think of the Sahara or the Mojave or somewhere like that. At least, um, at least as compared to where the fertile land is, okay? As we think about the sand being drifted and these drifts under the rain by the infiltration of the river. Remember, we're talking about where a river meets an oasis or something, river valley. There, under the rain, when the water finally infiltrates, plants, you'll see them coming up through the sand. 
even in the blistering blistering areas, if you look, you'll see some something growing. And there's sometimes a promise of considerable fertility. It never lasts because the, the dawn comes and then the periodic drift occurs again and life is stunted, life is choked out, and the sands just constantly shift and move. But if you were to do this, let's take a rock and let's put that rock in the same little river valley bed where the river meets the oasis. And let's put that rock there and let's watch and see what happens. In the shade of that rock, because of the water and the moisture and the protection from the rock, there's a difference that occurs. After a few showers, the leeward side of, of that rock, some blades will begin to spring up. And if you have some patience, one writer said, you'll see in time a garden in the middle of nothing. How did a boulder produce this? How did a rock, just a rock, accomplish that in the middle of a desert? Adam, George Adam Smith, days gone by, said, simply by arresting the drift. He stopped the drift. The rock provided an anchor to where the sands couldn't sweep through and waste everything away. Isaiah chapter number 32 and verse number 2 says, And a man shall be as in hiding place from the wind, as in hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. We sing that song. It's put to words and we sing that hymn. We sing about being in the cleft of the rock. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is that rock. He is the God-man, unmovable, and He is steadfast. And if we will hide in Him, then we can too see life where there's nothing but a vast desert of sorrow and grief and pain. We can see hope. And He is that rock to our children. Now, as we come to Matthew chapter number 6, that backdrop, now that I have your mind thinking about a desert place, thinking about a, a place where the sands shift constantly, everything in life is ebbing and flowing and fluctuating and, and just being eroded and deteriorated by the blast of the sand. I used to do sandblasting work, and we'd have to go and sandblast the paint off of pool bottoms. You tell me, put a little sand and a little wind and a little air compressor with that, you could do a lot of mighty damage with just sand and wind. And the devil uses sand and things in our life, shifting things, but if we'll come to Christ, we can hide in that rock. We went, did some hiking the other day, and my boys, I noticed uh, in the alpine tundra up here, uh, they found a cleft of the rock, and I pointed that out to them. We sang that song on the way back down from the side of the mountain. But they were in a safe place. Why? Because they were in the shadow of that rock. And it protects from the wind. As we look here at Matthew chapter 6, talking about being in a secret place, that's the heart. I had you read that verse with me on purpose because that's what I want you to focus on and what Jesus is saying. He's going to surround that positive thought by two negatives. And he's going to give you great examples of what not to do on either side of what you should do. Verse number 6 is what you should do. That's where the cleft of the rock is. That's where you're safe. 
That's where you're barred and no one can get to you. In that secret place of the Most High. Now I asked you in my title this morning, who actually hears your prayers? Who actually does? It's a loaded question, I know, but I'm a preacher so I can do that to you, right? I believe you'll find the answer to that question in one of three things given in our text here. First off, sometimes Jesus is giving these words because it's just us. Sometimes there are others who hear our prayers to the neglect of the Father. In verse number five, I want you to notice here, as he says, when thou prayest, that's singular, as a disciple, who are these disciples? It's the poor in spirit, those that have mourned, and the Beatitudes all the way down, those who are living as salt and light. Who is actually hearing your prayers? Are your prayers being prayed for the sake of others so that they can hear? Are your prayers being prayed in secret so that the Father can hear? Or are your prayers being prayed where really you're the only one that's hearing them? Maybe we have some misconceptions. When only others are hearing your prayers, the rewards Jesus teaches here will remain only here. They'll have their reward. They'll have their payment. But that payment will not break through eternity. It will be a temporal gain. When the Father, when only the Father hears, okay, when only others are hearing, that's, that's temporal. The results remain here. When only the Father hears, the reward is openly given. And He does things we ask Him to do in secret. He does those openly and there's no bar on that. I use the word open because there's no limit on what God can do. We read in our scripture reading, the Lord can do things and who will let? That's an, old, that's an English word, three-letter English word that has many definition, definitions if you look it up in the dictionary. To let can mean to hinder. And so when we're reading that passage in Isaiah, we need to read it with the understanding that if the Lord's going to do this, who's going to stop him? He's all-powerful. There's no limit to what God can do except for what we put on Him. And we learn that from Israel, don't we? Because they limited the Holy One. They put limitations on Him. They, they put Him in confines. And so as we pray to God in secret, let's not put any binds or any limitations on what He can do. Let's look for the reward to come, not because we want glorification, but because we want to see Him answer our prayers. He'll do it openly. Thirdly, when only yourself hears, correct me if that's improper English, just throw something at me, when only yourself hears, the result I would submit to you is rather finite. In comparison and contrast, really, to an infinite God who can do infinitely above all we ever ask or think, when only ourselves hears what we're praying, the result is rather limited. It's rather finite in scope. In fact, sometimes we ask for things and we want God to do things that maybe really isn't the best thing to happen after all. Do we really know best or does God? And so there's a finiteness when only ourself, only myself, hears that prayer. 
Two contrasts. One commentary put it like this, and I'll, I'll steal their words. Publicity and verbosity. Verbosity? How do you say that? I don't even know. Versus privacy and simplicity. Publicity and verbosity. You'll find those in these passages. Publicity. They do it in the street corners. They do it in the open places. At the, at the times of prayer throughout the day when everyone's supposed to be praying. Well, everyone sees these people pray. It's done in publicity and they publicize it. Before in the almsgiving it was sounding a trumpet. Here it's running out to the street corner to make sure everybody knows you're on time for prayer today. Verbosity. Just wordiness on and on. Endless. Just wind coming out of your mouth. and It's not getting anywhere. Just wordy, wordy, wordy. Over and over. Maybe, uh, maybe incantations even or recitations or Things that you're not even really thinking about. You saying you're just going through the motions of this. And this will apply today, I think. We'll find an application for that. That stands in contrast to privacy, praying in secret, and simplicity. That's all we need. A private time to simply ask God and talk to Him about what's going on. Whatever's on our heart. And the Holy Spirit helps us and prays makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. If we were to just uh, simply outline this passage, I did so in this manner. Thou shalt not pray as an hypocrite, verse number five. Prayers may be religious sometimes, but they'll wind up unavailing. These religious prayers, oh, they'll be rewarded, sure, but only temporarily. Secondly, humble prayers are the prayers that are heard. Those prayers make it to heaven. The request is then made in secret, but the reward comes in the open. Thirdly, we have some help for a mistaken mystic. Mystery, babble on the great. Yes, it's a play on words from the book of Revelation. You can write that down and think about it. Maybe it'll sink in after lunch. The Father is mindful before ever even being asked. Then he gives us a heavenly model for prayer. There you go. In a nutshell, that's an overview of what Jesus is saying here. But let's look at the nuts and bolts just a little bit deeper. Notice first off with me this morning in verse number 5. I want you to see here that I believe Jesus is cautioning his disciples against having misdirected prayers. Misdirected prayers. Now, some of you were already writing down your outline. Now you've got to change the blanks because we're having fun this morning. Misdirected prayers. Some of you are wondering, what are you talking about, Pastor? I don't know. I'm not checking those. Misdirected prayers. Verse number five, he says, when thou prayest. I don't know how many commentaries pointed this out. didn't say if, but when. We can just leave that right there, right? Amen. You get that point. Not if you pray, but when you pray. When I went through training, uh, we always had to be prepared because it was. We always said it's not a matter of if someone take you know tries to take over the branch or or you know lay us in siege or something. It's a matter of when. So if we're always prepared for the when, then when it occurs, it'll happen. We're told in the scriptures to pray without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing? Uh, some have called it an attitude of prayer. It's like the very breath we breathe as we're 
we're going, there should be no time during our day where we couldn't instantaneously be before the throne. That's quite an, an interesting thought, isn't it? To be immediately be in the presence of God's throne room in our heart and mind. When ye pray, when thou prayest, says thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Do you see the words thou shalt not? Does that remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? It ought to, because it is a command. It is an imperative. And I would say that it even has more force behind it than thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not commit adultery. As strongly as Jesus can caution his disciples, he says, don't do it like this. Like what, Jesus? What do I need to be cautious about in my prayers? Remember those folks we talked about before in the Sermon on the Mount the last few weeks together? Uh, Jesus Christ went through the law and he pointed out some things that the scribes had really taken out of that. And you've heard that it hath been said, and the Pharisees walking that fine tightrope line of spirituality and looking so good on the outside... But as Jesus will pronounce woe upon them later in this same gospel, they are like whited sepulchers. They're full of dead men's bones because they have it all good on the outside, but on the inside there's rottenness and their heart is far from God. Even though they draw nigh with their lips, their heart is far from Him. And so Jesus encouraged His disciples that if they were going to see the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness, the righteousness of those that said, I will follow Jesus, their righteousness must exceed, must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The very best people that we can think of, the people that we would want our children to grow up to be like, those are the people that Jesus says, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And if we're not careful, we'll think, well, this is beyond my reach. I could never live up to this standard. Well, how do we do it? It's through humility and through being poor in spirit and working through the Beatitudes by understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about the outward. It's about the inside. And those six things, those six examples that he gave from the Old Testament law verify that. You've heard that it hath been said of old, by them of old time, by them in ancient days, thou shalt not kill. But Jesus says, let me tell you a little more. It's not just about not committing the act of murder. It's about what you're ha- hiding in your heart from you think everyone else, but God sees. That hatred that you have against somebody without a cause, God already has judged that as sin. And you need to deal with that from the inside out. Later on, Jesus is going to talk about the heart. For out of it are all the issues of life, Proverbs says. But in the heart, that's where all this wickedness comes from. It's not that which comes into a man that defiles him, but that which comes out from the heart proceeded all these evil things. And so he covers murder and hatred. He covers adultery. He covers divorce and how they're mistreating marriage in his day. He, he, he moves through our promises, not just our lusts, but our promises and the things that we say we're going to do for others and the th- things that we say we're going to do for God, he says you need to move from the inside out on those things. And if we're not careful, we will wind up in the same rut religiously that they did, the scribes and the Pharisees, because we'll have all the motions down, we'll have everything right on the outside, 
but will miss the mark. We're not talking about a, a wrong posture in prayer. You can study through the Bible and see that sometimes you'll find people kneeling when they pray. Uh, the posture in Jesus' day was to raise your hands toward heaven. I believe it would be like something along these lines, expecting to receive something from God as you're asking Him. Uh, maybe you would be prostrate in, in prayer. Maybe you would be standing in prayer like Solomon was when they dedicated the temple in his day and the smoke filled the room. There's all kinds of different ways and postures to pray in, whether it's sitting, standing, or kneeling, or laying down, whatever is comfortable there. So Jesus isn't saying there's a right or wrong posture out externally. He's more concerned about what's on the heart. When I was in Israel, uh, every once in a while, over in the Palestinian areas, we would hear an alarm go off. What is it, five times a day or something? They've got to get that little rug out and look towards Mecca and and bow down and pray. That was publicly. It didn't matter where they were, in the street corners or in the, in the byways, and yes, in the mosques and, and all of that. Okay, I'm giving you that illustration because the culture is very similar. An oriental custom. And so in Jesus' day, these Jewish people would be very noticeable when they prayed. They wouldn't necessarily sound the alarm over the loudspeaker and, and, and do all of that that they do today as the Muslims do, but these Jewish people were very, very religious in their prayers. If you want to see a real-life example of this, go to the Western Wall, and you'll see them there, and, and they're making all kinds of motions before that wall, and they're with an honor, with a respect. They have their yarmulkes on. They have their head coverings. Uh, the ladies don't. Their men are in separate places from the ladies as they're praying towards this Western Wall, we've talked about that, and they're, they're saying these things. What are they saying when they're there? If you'll get close enough, and if you can understand them, you'll find out they're many times reading a prayer book that the rabbi told them to read, and so they're just reading these recited prayers that have been written over time. Maybe they'll take Psalm 116 and read that at the wall, and that's their prayer. Well, let's think about other things. Now, Please don't think I'm just picking on everybody else because I don't like everybody else. That's not the case, okay? I'm not any better than anyone else. But I'm just observing, and if you can observe with me, maybe, maybe you'll see some things too. We could probably go not very far down the road and find some similar things, not only in, in Islam, not only in Jewish culture, but in Christian churches as well. And I'll to use that term very loosely. Recitations. Uh, formed prayers, things that are written, and they go through the uh, they they go through the lectionary, and, and they they read these things, or or they'll have these prayer books and different things of that nature, and maybe they'll have some things that they rub along the way. Maybe they'll have something that they bow down to. Maybe they have something that they cast something into. I'm specifically not naming any denomination on purpose, but I think you understand where. Where are my concerns? Have we missed what Jesus is teaching here? I believe with all my heart that there are some very genuine, sincere people that pray. But it's not the earnestness. It's not how earnest we are in prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That verse is in the Bible. But I can be earnest and be wrong. I can be sincere and still, and still miss what Jesus is saying. 
One pastor said it like this. He said, all of us have one routine prayer in our system. I just threw a rock at me too, okay? That's three fingers pointed back here. All of us have at least one routine prayer in our system. And once we get rid of it, this pastor submitted that we can really start to pray then. Maybe you've noticed that, not only in your own praying. I know that that's convicting thought for me. But often when maybe we go to other prayer meetings, we, we hear people pray publicly. We might observe some things of that nature. Boy, Pastor, you're just throwing everybody under the bus this morning. Let's just run the whole gamut. Have there ever been prayer meetings in our church time on Wednesday nights or any other prayers that maybe missed the mark? Well, I wouldn't be so pious as to say we've done it right every single time, would you? I think we can all grow in this area. And so, with some people, praying is like putting the needle on a phonograph record and then forgetting about it, this pastor went on to say. I mean, you remember the old phonograph records? Put the needle on there and just forget about it, right? It just plays. But God doesn't answer insincere prayers. I would agree with that statement. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be. Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Well, explain that, Lord. If you look in your text, there's a colon. That punctuation tells us he's explaining a little further. He says, why? Why shouldn't you be like the hypocrites? The hypocrites would be those with the mask on, right? They're the actors. They're the, the, those that were involved in theatrics of their day. They know how to say it. They know what to say. But they have this mask on. They're pretending, if you will. Be not as the hypocrites are. Why? For they love. Phileo is the root word there. They love. We get Philadelphia from that. Brotherly love. This is what they just, they love this. This makes them feel good inside. Uh, they, they feel like they're doing something when they do this. They love to do this. What do they love to do? Oh, nothing real major. I mean, I would love to see more people in our streets praying, wouldn't you? I would love to see more people trying to get a hold of God on the street corners. Maybe not, you know, beating us over the head with the Bible or roll up a window. Okay, we're in America. I can, I can have a little fun, can't I? When I went to college, many people thought that we were the ones standing on the street corners throwing our Bibles at people and yelling at them with a megaphone. That was not us. We did witness, though, on the streets and try to do that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about evangelizing. I'm talking about just simply praying. We don't use our prayers for these kind of evangelistic purposes, but they love to do this, Jesus says. And I wonder maybe if he's not observing some things even while he's speaking these words in Galilee. Why do they love this? They stand in the synagogues. Okay, they'll be right at the door. And when the, the officiator of the synagogue meeting says, all right, it's time to pray because they had formal prayers, then so-and-so, this is their turn. They would come and they would have prepared all of this publicly and they'd get up and they'd give this great oration of a prayer and boy, they would come down feeling really good. They love that. Maybe they the, the, the clock would go off or whatever alarm they'd set and, and it's time for that afternoon prayer or the evening prayer or the morning prayer. Remember, Daniel prayed three, three times a day. Morning and night for sure. Maybe it was uh, as we're approaching here very soon, uh, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, on these days, they would, they would be very public with their prayers. So Jesus is saying here, 
Don't pray with a mask on. Don't do it because you love to be seen. What's the purpose of going into the street? What's the purpose of being called on by the officiator of the synagogue? What's the purpose of getting out there when the alarm goes off so that everybody can see and everybody can get close enough? Wouldn't it be said, wow, that was a great prayer. Wow, he really knows how to formulate his words and pray publicly. Jesus said, they love to be seen of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. And that reward is a payment, and it, you know, they're, they're buying the praise of men, and Jesus is basically saying they got it. If they were out for the praise of men, they accomplished it. But that's as far as it goes. Religion devoid of a relationship is like a pacifier that a baby works hard to suck on, but from which no real nutrition flows. Thank you, Tony Evans. <laughs> we got these plugs all around our house. We call them plugs. I don't know what you call them. Okay, I'll move on. You just go to town on that thing. It's not getting anything except for just pacification and maybe calmness or calming the nerves. Who's it for? It's not for anybody but the baby. It's not for anybody but the baby. Maybe mom and dad and the caregiver. <laughs> Hey, uh, one, one person said this. I've never heard of anyone who was cumbered about with much praying. Cumbered about Martha, being cumbered about with much care. Never, I, was that Spurgeon? Yeah, that was Spurgeon. He said, I've never heard of anybody being cumbered about with much praying. We get cumbered about with much care and much serving. And before long, we're going through the motions. Think about what's happening here. In this day and time, the Jewish people would go to the temple for their religious observances. Now, the temple was a very special place because that's where the presence of God was said to be. Now, in the days of Ezekiel, we know that Shekinah glory departed from Israel and left them. And today, there's a Shekinah glory that can be seen. Paul says, ye, the church, are the temple of God. And so when we gather together, we can have Jesus in our midst and we can know God's presence is real. But in this day and time, think about it. They're not going to the place where the presence of God is supposed to be. They're going to the street corners. They're going to the streets. They're not going to where God's supposed to be. This thing that Jesus does is amazing to me because he takes all of that cultism, all of that culturism, if you will, and he just flips it right on its head. He says, now, let me tell you where the presence of God is going to be seen. Not in the street corners, not in the streets. You're going to find him where? In the secret place in your house. Go back to where you dwell. Go back to where you live. And, and in these homes, okay, now we have nice homes today. We have probably more cabinets than we can know what to do with sometimes. And pantries here and storage areas there. Well, in these kind of houses, you might be fortunate to have one area where you could keep storage items. And this would probably be the only area in your house that would have a bolt on the door. When you see the word shut, underline that. Because that's the idea there of it being bolted. This is a place where you would keep maybe some, uh, some precious things. So out of everywhere in your house, what would you want to put under lock and key? That's the secret place. Now, some of you guys, you're going to get real spiritual here in a minute because you're going to go find a gun safe big enough for you to put a chair in. 
Amen? All right. The secret place. Go ahead and lock that, bolt that door. All right. Derail. Back on track here. This is a place where maybe there's some treasure in the house already. And there might be a little bit of an innuendo, don't you think? You've got to go to that place. Lock everything out. Shut everything else out. Just you and God. Not your guns. You and God. You and God. Alone with Him. That's where the presence of God, that sweet communion, that sweet fellowship is going to be. Don't run out to the street corner. You're not going to find Him there. Don't even run to some of the churches that you think you might find God in. Don't run to the temple house because God left that long ago. No, where are you going to find him? You're going to find him in the secret place. Jesus says, thou shalt not. I think there's a force to that because remember, everything that we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is helping us protect the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what does it do? What damage does it do to the cause of Christ for Christians, his disciples, to be running out and doing these pompous, big, frilly prayers and and being able to do this so that they can be seen? What glory goes to Christ in that? No, all the glory goes to the person. They have the reward. Prayer is essentially a private communication between a child and his father, one person said. So we've talked about these... um, misappropriated prayers, uh, misdirected prayers. They're directed to the wrong people. So, again, back to the idea here, who is actually hearing you pray? Are you doing it so that others can see you and say, wow, they're really spiritual. I wish I could pray publicly like they could. Now let's look at not only misdirected prayers, which... We can recognize them a little better now, and we see their reward. But let's consider some meaningful prayers. The place of meaningful prayer is that secret room I told you about, the one where you can lock the door, the storeroom where treasures might be kept. Enter into that closet, the closet, that secret place. The power of maintaining a close and glad fellowship with God all the day will depend entirely upon the intensity with which we seek to secure it in the hour of secret prayer. Thank you, Andrew Murray. In a single sentence, we find out where the Holy of Holies is today. That special meeting place between God and the believer. Secret devotions resemble the rivers which run under the earth, D.O. Moody had written in his Bible. The closets of God's people are where the roots of the church Grow. Again, thank you, D.L. Moody. It's in the closet. Enter into that closet. Oswald Chambers wrote a lot of devotional works. He wrote My Utmost First Highest. He had an entry in another devotional he had written that the title just grabbed me. Here's the title of the snippet for that day. He called it The Divine Region of Religion. It's that secret place. It's that that place where your eyes can be upon God and not upon men. What is this place? That is the place where prayers are heard. The promise is He'll reward openly. He'll reward you openly. Now, 
I've used all my time here this morning, and I was really looking forward to getting to this part with you. So maybe, I don't know if I have time to do it next time or not. But prayers that are shrouded in mystery, I think I can do this. All right, we're going to put the notes aside here. Just hold on with me. So we've talked about those religious kind of prayers. So think about the most religious person you can think of. I'm, not, I'm talking about somebody who's really devoutly religious, and they pray all the time. Now, if they're sincere and they know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are praying in their closet more than they're praying in the street, then I'm behind them in what they're praying. But I want you to think of somebody maybe that you have in mind that you wonder if their prayer mechanisms, their prayer machinery, if you will, hasn't become a little... Um, well, help me out with the word here. Um, do, you, do you know what I'm trying to think of here? Um, well, let's see. When I was a kid, I used to have a little rock I'd carry around in my pocket, and I'd rub on it. It was called a worry, a worry rock. Uh, one time, I had a little rabbit's foot, and I kept that with me. And, and boy, you know that rabbit's foot. With, okay, maybe their prayers, the mechanisms of them, have become so mechanical and things that it's more like one of those little charms, you know, one of those superstitions. Maybe they, I, I want to be kind. Okay, I'll stop right there. So we have the religious prayers. These are people that ought to know who God is, right? The Pharisees should have known who God was. If anybody should have been able to get a hold of him, it should have been them, but they missed it. Now Jesus says, that's the secret place. That's where you're going to find God in the prayer closet, in the, behind that bolted door. Now, the next one he covers is the heathen. Don't let that word derail you. He's simply talking about the Gentiles, those that have, they, they don't have the religiousness down of it, but all the, all, everywhere I go, you know, I'm always talking to people, and, and boy, we can talk about spiritual things here in Colorado, can't we? You can go and have a conversation with just about anybody about something spiritual. But the moment you start talking about Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, the life, is the moment that spiritual conversation comes to an abrupt halt. It baffles me. But this is, this is the state of in which we live. So let me give you probably the best illustration that I can come up with in our day and time of what this might look like. Now, please, if, if you are involved in you know, exercises and therapy and things of that nature, please keep doing that. I'm not preaching that you shouldn't you know, stretch and, and do Pilates or yoga or whatever you feel like you need to do to, to have your body feel better. But the moment you start doing it for spiritual purposes is the moment you have entered into a world of Eastern mysticism that is foreign to New Testament Bible-believing Christianity. There's the dividing line, okay? So um, I'm all for rolling out your mat and doing stretches, and if you need that, fine. But what I am against is owning yourself into oblivion and emptying your mind of everything and laying down all of your defenses because, friend, as a pastor, let me just tell you, I believe that you will be opening up yourself to a world of spiritual warfare that you are not ready and equipped to engage in. Remember that fellow that Jesus talked about sweeping his house, and then seven came in and inhabited, and the state of the latter was worse than the first? 
I think many people make that same mistake today by trying to get into these spiritual areas. The word that he uses here about the vain repetitions are these babblings. And so there is a psychological effect that happens when you go through these motions and you can go through the therapy and different things that they do and the, and the meditations, not biblical meditations, but the only kind of meditations. So when he talks about don't do it like the heathen are doing it, that would be an illustration. Because there's a superstition that surrounds it. They, Jesus explains it here. With the multitude of words, they think that they're going to sway God to do what they're trying to get him to do. If I rub this lucky foot enough times, if I rub this beat enough times, if I do this enough times, if I just say enough, then maybe I've got to be importunate in prayer, right? Well, that's not importunate. That is vain babbling. Jesus condemns that here. He says, don't do it like the hypocrites and don't do it like the heathen. The place of heavenly prayer is in the closet. You simply talk to God. You let Him know what's going on in your heart and then the Holy Spirit makes groanings with utterances that we can't even fathom. And the whole point is that God's will is done, not ours. See, this is where I think those prayers are shortcoming when we get into these heathenistic kind of prayer practices and different things that are that are happening. And I, I'm, I'm just amazed at how rapidly this stuff is sweeping across our country, even in our, in our hospitals and things, and it's making a huge inroad through mysticism that really has crept into the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, I won't bore you with all of those details. But when we look outside of these pagan sources and to these polytheistic sources, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Eastern religions. That's really the, the place where they began. These pagan things. That has no place in the Christian's prayer closet. It's a conversation with God. Now, uh, I won't have to worry about telling you where we're going to have church next week because none of you are going to be back anyway. Amen. <laughs> I love you. I, I do love you. And I just hope and pray that this message this morning will help you know how to pray a little bit better. Don't become mechanical. Don't get caught in the religious motions of it that you, you know, you have to look like you're walking with God and so everybody can see you walking with God. Don't get caught up in some of these things that will lure you away from where the place of real prayer is. Just walk with God. Can you do that? Even if nobody else sees it, just go into that prayer closet, shut that door behind you, bolt it from all the cares of life. We have a hard time leaving this world behind, don't we? We do. And so we've got to lock that stuff out because, hey, that cell phone, as soon as you sit down to pray, boom, that's when you're going to get the next text message. The next time you try to, the hardest thing that you're going to do is get in your prayer closet and remove all the distractions and lock everything out and get alone with God. You know why? Because it's uncomfortable to be there. Because His Word might show you something that you need to take care of and get right. But when you do, boy, it's just sweet communion, sweet fellowship. And you can have peace knowing that God's heard you. And you can go out. And people might just observe that you've been with Jesus because they'll see Him on you. And your countenance will betray the fact that you were in your closet. And the reward will come openly.